In the meantime, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13 briefly tonight as we continue to study this wonderful book. Some think it may be the first uh, letter that Paul wrote. Uh, I don't know that we can prove that or that it matters, but uh, at any rate, uh, a very important letter, a very exciting letter, <clears throat> every chapter mentioning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, chapter 3 is... Uh, as we get to the end of it tonight is no different. Actually, the place I want to start with this is by talking about the Apostle John. Aging and nearing the end of his earthly life, the Apostle John said, and this is from 3 John uh, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. How would, how would you end that sentence? I have no greater joy than... I wouldn't have said what he said. That's quite a statement. I would have guessed he'd say that Jesus gave him his greatest joy, such as spending time with the Lord in his devotions or some other such thing. Yet somehow, without diminishing the joy he found in Jesus or the joy of his salvation, John unashamedly said that the thing that gave him the greatest joy was to hear a report that his spiritual children, those he had either led to faith in Jesus Christ or had shepherded in his many pastorates, that they were continuing to walk in the truth of the gospel. In our text, in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul was anxiously awaiting a report from Timothy regarding the spiritual state of the church there in Thessalonica. Hearing a good report from Timothy, he said, and this is in verses uh, 8 and 9, For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Again, I'd have to say that those words are surprising and stunning. Paul's life and joy were wrapped up in the fellowship of believers. What is it about the fellowship of believers that allowed John and Paul to say such things? Perhaps something Jesus once said can shed some light on their fervor. Now, this is from Matthew chapter 12. You'll remember the scene. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But Jesus answered and said to the one who had told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Speaking of family, uh, my grandson Zeke is watching from home. And at 11 months, he's a pretty spiritual guy, you know, so hi, Zeke. Uh, now, it's true we can't choose our family. Some of you wish you could. But the Lord did. He did choose his family. If you believe on him whom the Father has sent, he embraces you as his family. Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you. He says, Behold, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, those who hear my word, those who do the will of the Father, believing in me, they are my family. I loved my dad. He died last year. I love my mom. I love my brothers. But there's a sense in which even an unknown believer is more family than my natural family. Here's another thought. Regarding your earthly or your natural family, which you love, isn't your greatest concern that they be saved and that they become part of the eternal family? And so we have a natural, supernatural sense as Christians of family. 
I've heard it said that nothing can rob us of our joy. Well, that's partly true. The joy we have in Jesus and the joy of salvation, those cannot really be robbed from us. We can surrender them, but no one can take them away. It would seem, however, that when Christians fall away, that our joy can be affected. Now, Paul was genuinely anxious about the condition of the family he had birthed through preaching the gospel, but was forced to leave behind. And so in verse 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Timothy met up with Paul in Corinth. He was able to give him a good report about the church in Thessalonica. Paul used the words good news to describe the report, uh, which in the Greek is evangelize. It's the only place in the New Testament it is used of anything other than preaching the gospel. Their favorable spiritual condition was like a gospel to Paul. It was good news about the good news. They were a people of faith toward God, which incited love towards mankind. It's shorthand for saying they were doing great. Verse 7, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Just knowing that the Thessalonians were walking with the Lord comforted Paul in his sufferings. They didn't need to do anything or to send anything. Their steadfastness was all the comfort that he needed. This challenges my thoughts about comfort and about comforting others. I always think that something needs to be done in order for comfort to be accomplished. Maybe comfort is far more spiritual than we have become accustomed to. I can be comforted by another believer's faithfulness. They don't have to do anything for me. I just need to know that they're walking with the Lord, that they're there, that I can talk with them. And I can be a comfort to other believers by simply standing fast in the Lord. Verse 8, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. What an incredibly bold statement. Paul was indicating that he felt dead until he received the good news about them standing fast in the Lord. Now, some of the commentators too quickly, I believe, say that at least for the minister, seeing converts continue in the Lord is an affirmation of their work. And while there may be some truth to that, and while certainly a, a pastor or a minister or a missionary wants to see people continue in the Lord, uh, there are just too many ministers, even in the Bible, who have little outward success. Jesus was one of them. After three and a half years of solid ministry, he was left with 11 disciples after the 12th betrayed him. Ten of them abandoned him at the cross. On the day of Pentecost, there were a mere 120 people gathered together. You've heard this many times from myself and other Bible teachers. Not a very big success, you know, story. Not a, not a good ratio. Uh, you know, if you look at that from a worldly standpoint, three and a half years. I know guys who, you know, have been in places three and a half years, and if they only have 11 converts, they leave. Or 120, they're gone. Would Paul have thrown in the missionary towel if the report had been bad about Thessalonica? Would it have nullified the truth of the gospel? No and no. I know that in my trials, in our trials, we look to believers who are standing fast and will encourage us to do the same. They really can't do anything to help us. The comfort comes from knowing they serve the same Jesus and are standing on the same ground 
as us. Do you ever get a call? Maybe you haven't. Maybe this has never happened to you. But um, do you ever get a call from somebody, a believer that you know, and they say, hey, I just was thinking about you. Or if they're, they're trying to be spiritual, they'll say, the Lord put you on my heart today. And there is that time when you think, wow, because I needed somebody to be thinking about me today. I hope you prayed for me and didn't just think about me, you know, and that kind of a thing. And, and, and there's an encouragement. They don't have to do anything. In fact, they can't do anything for you. You realize a lot of the trials and sufferings and troubles you get into, there's really nothing that anybody can do for you other than be who they are. I mean, they can make you a meal. You know, we can, we, we can. I'm not saying we shouldn't show each other practical love and those kinds of things. We, you know, obviously we should, but you don't have to in order to be a comfort to somebody else. Maybe tonight as we're praying, you would think about somebody that the Lord has put on your heart. It doesn't have to be here in Hanford. It could be anywhere. Maybe that person needs to hear from you. Maybe you should commit to giving them a call or dropping them a line and figuring out what's going on. And you can be a comfort to them, even if they lie to you and say, oh, no, I'm fine. Lie is a big word, I guess, if they don't want to tell you what's really going on. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? Contemporary English version says, how can we possibly thank God enough for all the happiness you have brought us? There ought to be people in the body of Christ that you can turn to in your suffering who just by being who they are in Christ comfort you so that you give thanks to God for them. Or how about this? Are you a person who by standing fast in Christ is at least available to be that comfort to others in their suffering? You ever think about it that way? You, you want to be walking with the Lord so that you're ready if somebody else needs somebody to comfort them, just knowing they're standing firm? How would it be if somebody called you and said, hey, will you pray for me? Yeah, I really can't because I'm, a, I'm backslidden. I'm, I'm drunk right now. I'm loaded right now. I'd love to pray for you, but I, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. And so we need to uh, have an other's mindset so that we're ready. Verse 10, night and day praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. The situation in Thessalonica was somewhat unique in that, as I've told you each week, Paul was run out of town after being with them for only three Sabbaths. We don't know how many days on either side of those Saturday, Friday night Saturdays he was there, but he was only there for three Sabbath days. He had certainly taught them a lot, but there was so much more that he wished to impart to them. Here's an insight into spiritual warfare from Paul as well. Earlier in this letter, Paul indicated that the devil was somehow hindering him from returning to them. He met the opposition, he says, by night and day praying exceedingly. Uh, and so, of course, we should do the same, or it's a, at least something that we want to consider. I think I, I don't want to keep belaboring. It's easy to, to beat ourselves up about how little we pray, but, but at some point we have to say things like, we really don't pray as much as we should. I'm thinking now, I'd, I, probably I'll never get another person to come in and counsel with me because I'm thinking now that probably what, I, what you should do in a Christian counseling session, if you want to call it counseling, discipleship, is spend at least the first 15 or 20 minutes just praying together. But what we normally do, and I do it, I've done it for years, 
You see, you open in prayer. There's a formal open in prayer. Let's pray together. And it's sincere. There's nothing insincere about it. But, I mean, if we really believe that prayer is important, let's, you know, before we even talk about this, let's just pray about it. Let's just pray for the first 20 minutes, you know. Either your counseling would be more successful or your counseling load would go way down, one of the two, depending on how people perceive it. We have a, we have an, I don't want to get off on too many tangents, but we do have an idea in our culture that in order to be helped, you spend exactly one hour with a person. No more, no less. Everything is based on the hour system. You came in at 10, you're going to leave at 11. That means from 10 to 10.05 you pray. You've got maybe 50 minutes to talk and then there's a closing prayer and then you're gone because the next appointment or something like that. And um, I think a lot more we just say, hey, I don't know what to say to you. Let's just pray. Let's just talk to the Lord and see what the Lord would say. And at the end of it, maybe the Lord hasn't said anything. I was telling David Brooks tonight a story. It's kind of off subject, but about Bob Caldwell, Calvary pastor in Boise, Idaho. God put it on his heart to go to India to start a work in India. He sold his car so he'd have the money to get to India. Goes to India, spends two weeks in India, doesn't run into anybody, doesn't hear from the Lord. I mean, he, he knew the Lord wanted him there, but, but, you know, there wasn't any divine appointment there. Comes back to Idaho that next Sunday, meets a guy from India in the church. And then they were able to start talking, and now a, a huge ministry exists from Calvary Boise in uh, India and stuff. And so, you know, just doing what the Lord wants you to do. Uh, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Paul prayed as if it were up to him to affect God's heart. But he believed the Lord would direct his path. It's a great model to follow. Paul, uh, and you've probably heard this before, pray as if everything depended upon you, believe as if everything depended upon God. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. In a church filled with love, there was room to increase and abound in love. I like that. Where can you, where can we increase and abound in love first to each other but then to all in our community just as we do to you meant paul was increasing and abounding in love in just the ways he was recommending to them there's no retiring there's no kicking back there's no letting others do the increasing we are always to be increasing bearing more fruit much fruit as unto the lord and so you know, just when you get to the point maybe where somebody would say, man, that, that body is a, a loving group of people. They just, you know, so much love. Then we want to be increasing and abounding in love all the more. You never, you never get to the love ceiling, you know, where it's like, hey, we've peaked out on love. I couldn't love anymore. If I loved anymore, that would be it. It wouldn't be love anymore. Uh, so we're always needing to be thinking about growing in those areas. And so a devotional question for each of us personally might be, when was your last increase in love? I mean, if, if, it's kind of a weird phrase, but if you, if you look back at your Christian walk, uh, recent walk, let's say, say, when could I point to something and say, there's an increase in love right there? I didn't do it necessarily. I'm not saying it's something you have to do. It's something that God the Holy Spirit wants to do 
through you with the love of God, but, you know, are you at least in a place where God has you put you and used you so that you can say, yeah, there was, a, there was a definite increase in love. If I had a love meter, I could have found an increase in love. You know, like the ghost hunters, they have that, what are those crazy meters for, what is it that they, there's something that's called... No, there's, it'll come to me, but, you know, some kind of spirit. If you had a love meter, I'm, I might get, a, like, some kind of crazy thing and, and just relabel it a love meter, and when I'm greeting people, I'll just say, you know, man, love is all over you, brother. But anyway, when was your last increase in love? Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was coming for his saints. Well, the saints accompanying Christ at his coming, that's probably a reference to the souls of the saints who have departed this life and gone to be with Christ, whose bodies will be resurrected when he comes in the clouds for his church. And so the language here, totally consistent with our understanding of the imminent rapture of the church, Jesus is coming for his church, but he's coming with some of his saints. To be absent from the body is to what? It's to be present with the Lord. Your body is in the ground or it's cremated or it's blown to smithereens. Whatever happens to your body happens to it. The soul, the spirit, goes to be with the Lord. And that the return of Christ to rapture the church, as we'll read in this epistle in chapter 4, the dead in Christ will rise first. That means somehow your spirit that's with the Lord has to be reunited with a physical body that comes out of the ground or unsmithereens or whatever happens to it. It's not the same body you died in. It's a glorified body, but it has a connection to your original body the way a seed uh, and a plant are connected. And so God is going to be coming with saints for saints. And so very, very careful wording here, very accurate wording um, we, of course, understand that the Lord's coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. We would hear that trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ would rise first. As I said, every chapter mentions the return of Jesus for his church in the rapture. Right up until that very moment, we should be increasing and abounding in love uh, for one another and for the Lord and for all. Now, a good summary of our daily activities would be establishing our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. It's a mouthful, but it's easy to understand that we would be doing things that establish or set our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. If something I'm doing or thinking about or whatever, if it isn't contributing to that, I should at least question it, if not eliminate it. And so, you know, I don't have to go through every thought or everything, but if my general idea is, like, is, am I establishing my heart blameless in holiness by this conversation, by this activity, by this, you know, thing that I'm doing, knowing I'm going to stand before our God and Father? If not, I should question it or maybe eliminate it. You know, the world has its groups, it has its clubs, it even has its gangs, but none of them can hold a candle to the fellowship of believers. Paul said, I, I'm just, uh, you know, he, he was so anxious and, and so wound up about their condition because he considered them his real family. The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, who 
was close to Jesus Christ, who you would expect. I mean, I, John, what's, what gives you the greatest joy in life? Jesus. Don't you just see John saying that? Just I can say that I can answer that in one word, Jesus. But instead he says, you know what gives me the greatest joy is that my children are walking in the truth because they understood the quality of family that we had become God's forever family. You realize, you know, you might not want to look around right now, but we're all going to be together forever and ever. Now, hopefully we'll look better than we look right now. Now, some of you think, hey, what are you trying to say? You want to go out behind the building? Let's go, you know, but we're going to have some kind of a glorified body. I'm looking forward to mine. Maybe you think you're there already, but I, you know. And we're going to be together. And, and these guys, that's where they're coming from. It's, it's not about, you know, this other stuff that the commentators talk about. It's about the understanding that men, uh, this is a, we're the family of believers. And, and we bear witness to that when we think, yeah, you know, that's true. Because as much as I love my family, my earthly family, I want them to come into the eternal family. And I, I'm not, I, I, I'm going to be really bummed if they don't. Because this is where it's at, and, 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 and we need to be tight. The fellowship of believers who would agree with Jesus and Paul and John about true family, that's a, a rare and rich thing indeed. Amen? Amen.